0: We are back. As promised at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about uh, a very interesting individual with a very good guest. George Pendle writes about science, art, and culture for the Times of London, also the Sunday Times and the Financial Times. And he joins us now from New York City to talk about his book about a most curious character, John Whiteside's Parsons. The book is titled, Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of a Rocket Scientist, John Whitesides Parsons, and we want to say welcome to Radio Parallax, George Pendle. Hello, Doug. About a year ago, I was uh, in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine was talking about the origins of JPL. I went on the web, looked up uh, the man it was reputedly named after, Jack Parsons, and I discovered your book. And I've had it to be an absolutely marvelous read. You and I talked about it on uh, Insight last year over in Capital Public Radio, and we're we'll itching to bring you on to KDVS to share this experience with the KDVS listeners.
1: Yeah, well, it'd be my pleasure.
0: How did you stumble upon this story, this this very curious story about Jack Parsons?
1: Well. Jack Parsons, uh, I first read about in a footnote in a uh, scientific textbook. It was really nothing more than a a few lines, and it it said that he had been uh, a maverick rocket scientist with uh, a rather curious personal life, and that he had died at a young age um, shortly after the Second World War. And uh, I thought that this is curious, you know, uh, why is this uh, man mentioned here? And as I looked into the story of Jack Parsons, I found this. Almost this Pandora's box, which I had opened uh, after finding his name in this footnote. I had found that rather than just being an eccentric rocket scientist, he had really been one of the, the godfathers of the American space program. Uh, not only had he been uh, a rocket scientist, he had also been uh, an occultist and the head of an occult group in Los Angeles during the 1930s and 40s. And on top of all that, he'd also been a, a science fiction icon. A, a uh, great figure for, for the young and aspiring authors of the day, like Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein, and he had even appeared in some science fiction stories. Uh, so suddenly, from this very uh, you know uh, small mention in a footnote in a rather dry scientific textbook, uh, I, I stumbled upon this incredible character.
0: Well, it, incredible indeed. Um, I think if you've grown up in America, or in any way have followed the space program, one of us familiar with the notion that... Uh, Science fiction writers, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, uh, just writers in general who have aspired to fantasy, have given scientists something to shoot for. And I think we all think of of rocketry and, and space exploration as having some origins in writing. But until I read your book, I didn't realize how absolutely, literally true that was.
1: No, it's, it's very true, although many scientists today try and uh, separate themselves or distance themselves from science fiction literature uh, officially, uh, unofficially. Uh, there's been a, a huge stream of, of, of scientists working for NASA and for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who have all been huge science fiction fans. Uh, in particular, uh, the early days of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which uh, my subject, Jack Parsons, uh, uh, founded, uh, we're all great fans of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Uh, they really, and they really, took these stories as as almost prophetic texts. They they really wanted to to try and make them come true, and, and holding these books up as their scriptures, almost, uh, you know, Parsons, you know, really wanted to make what Verne had written on text. He wanted to make it actually happen. Uh, and and it's quite extraordinary how how inspiring science fiction literature was. Uh, around the, the early decades
0: of the 20th century, George, let's go back in time. I think living in an era where we have geosynchronous satellites and, and TV programs, cell phones bouncing messages, uh, we just we take rocketry for granted. But if you take the clock back to like the 20s and 30s, rocketry did not have a very respectable image.
1: No, not at all. In fact, uh, leading on from, from the last question, rocketry was really only discussed in science fiction magazines and novels. It was seen as nothing more than a fantasy, something which teenagers would read about and dream about, fighting aliens in some far-off galaxy. Uh, rockets were, were, were science fiction, and, and in the 20s they were, they were treated with absolute disdain. Uh, a few brave souls, uh, like Robert Goddard, who was, who was really the, the founder of American rocketry, uh, had made great steps forward in making rockets you know, viable alternatives to, to travel. Uh, uh, the possibility of a rocket going into space was, was really uh, Goddard's uh, ideal, but he had been shunned by both the scientific uh, community and the public. Uh, no less an authority than the New York Times had described him as something of, of a lunatic, and he had been forced to take his uh, experiments into the deserts of New Mexico, where he became a, an, almost a martyr to, to, to rocketry. Uh, and so it was with this vast kind of mass of public, uh, you know, disapproval against rockets that uh, Jack Parson, the subject of my book, uh, began his work, uh, really prompted only by, by the science fiction manuals. Uh, like I say, no textbooks mentioned rocketry. In fact, uh, a textbook as late as 1936 uh, on astronomy said that rocketry was, was fancy. Uh, <laughs> no scientist really took it seriously.
0: Well, I think a lot of people listening are saying, well, hey, what about the rocket's red glare from, from the American national anthem? Uh, they do go back to the ancient Chinese, but no one, no one was able to direct them as they, as they would see fit.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, the rocket, as a contraption, uh, you know, a cylinder propelled by the combustion of its contents, it is over 1,000 years old. But over those 1,000 years, they were just proven to be incredibly hard to control. Uh, the Chinese uh, invented them around 1,000 A.D. and uh, used them as weapons, but they were very dangerous and very hard to control weapons. Uh, over the centuries, armies had rocket battalions, and the uh, rocket's red glare, as mentioned in the Star Spangled Banner, uh, were the British rockets fired uh, against the Americans. But really, as artillery improved, the rockets were pushed to one side. Uh, rockets uh, weren't viable uh, as a weapon. They were too hard to control. They were too difficult to work out because they were literally controlled explosions. That's what they were. And, and this was much too difficult for, for most people to uh, to deal with. So by the dawn of the 20th century, Rockets had been entirely replaced uh, as weapons by uh, by cannons and artillery guns.
0: Let's fast forward then from uh, the bombing of Fort McHenry to 1935. At this point in time, rocketry is being tinkered with. I think the Germans are doing some work. Werner von Braun, people like that over over in Europe. Robert Goddard has sort of uh, been shunned. He's I guess by that point he's probably in New Mexico. But in Pasadena, California, a couple of 22-year-old kids decide, you know... We need to pursue this, and they go over to the Caltech campus to see if they can drum and just Tell us how this all came about.
1: Jack Parsons uh, grew up in, in Pasadena, and he was a, a fan of science fiction, as I've said, and he was also a great tinkerer. He and his best friend, Ed Foreman, used to try and build rockets in their backyards, and uh, you know, were setting rockets off which would explode and anger all the residents of, uh, of the town. And they got to a certain stage in their experiments, by conversing with various other enthusiasts around the world, Uh, they got to a stage where they needed some kind of scientific support. They needed backing, both financial and technical. And Jack Parsons and Ed Foreman, who really had little more than high school educations, decided that if they were going to get scientific backing, there was only one place they could go, and that was the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, the Caltech they were brazen about it. They walked in the doors and they said, hey, is anybody working on rockets? <laughs> and of course, there was uh, something of a, a, of a snicker when they mentioned this, but it so turned out that they were lucky. And, and that's really one of their great skills. They were lucky. And they happened upon uh, a young uh, graduate student named Frank Molina, who was 23 years old, who had been interested in rockets to a certain extent. He, he was wondering why no one else had really studied them. And The three of these young men got together and they began working on rockets with with Caltech's uh, consent, uh, albeit uh, begrudging consent. Um, They began working on rockets on campus. Now, this led to all sorts of uh, troubles because rockets being such uh, dangerous and uncontrollable uh, subjects were were often uh, liable to explode. And it gained them the nickname, the Suicide Squad, by the members uh, of Caltech, because every now and then an explosion would rip across the Caltech campus. Uh, One of them would be seen covered in soot. And literally, it it it, it it would have been funny if it hadn't been so dangerous. And that's how it all started.
0: You know, I I can't resist uh, uh, taking a quote you used on the last time we talked about this. About these early days, you referred to it as the Bugs Bunny approach.
1: <laughs> right, it really was. It was very much, you know, you know, set fire to something and see what happens. And it really was that there were so many uh, near-death experiences from the three of them. Uh, and they were eventually joined by a, a few more enthusiasts who were just wondering who these crazy guys were. But uh, there were near-death experiences as bits of rockets flew past their heads. as They were thrown to the ground. And eventually the university authorities were so... Flabbergasted at what they were doing, that they thrust them to the Arroyo Seco, a, a dry river valley which ran near the, the campus, where they were allowed to continue their experiments and where the experiments only got louder and more dangerous.
0: As I guess the ringleader to this, or the original impetus for this, comes from Jack Parsons along with Ed Foreman, joined by Frank Molina. They, uh, I gather, start, start making the darn things work.
1: They were literally working out of their own pockets. Uh, they didn't have much funding, although they did have... Uh, a slight, uh, you know, uh, backing from from the university. Uh, The one person they did have on their side was the great genius of aerodynamics, Theodore von Karman, who was an old professor who thought there might be something in this rocket malarkey. So with his backing and really working odd jobs while they could to get money for their experiments, they slowly and painstakingly worked their way forwards to operating rockets, to getting rockets which could fly in the air, which could power, which had thrust which wouldn't blow up. And as they began to become more successful, the authorities in Caltech and the authorities elsewhere in the government started to look at them uh, less with contempt and more with, like, what can these guys do for us?
0: I guess if you go to Pasadena today, the site of that experiment is the current campus of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
1: Uh, There's even a a small plaque on the ground, I mean very small, um, as if they were almost ashamed of their past, but showing the exact first uh, place where their first rocket experiment in the river valley took place. And now you take a look at the campus and it's sprawling for miles. It's a vast, incredibly expensive affair. But really to begin with, it was just a few tin cans, some sandbags, and a couple of trenches into which to dive after the, you know, when the rocket blew up.
0: I think it's inspiration for all of our listeners, of course, being on a university uh, uh, radio station here, that a trio of determined 22-year-olds can, can go far.
1: Quite. Uh, and imagine their surprise when they found that with the backing of the government, they, they, soon began to, they were able to make bigger and bigger rockets, and they were able to even think about you know, possibly, maybe possibly, sending a man into outer space.
0: Well, George, what starts out to be, you know, the, the suicide squad on the Caltech campus eventually becomes Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But not only do these, these early efforts found uh, what's today a great institution of rocketry, they also um, got into the commercial aspects of it, starting with someone asking, I guess it was Von Karman, if they could find a way to assist heavy bombers getting off of small airfields.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, when the authorities started to see the success of the early rocket uh, experiments, uh, they soon began to wonder how they could put them to use. The, America had just entered the war in 1941, and there was all talk of, uh, of aircraft carriers and of trying to get aircraft to t- take off from short runways on aircraft carriers. And the idea was to strap rockets beneath the wings of these planes and see if they can, you know, if it would help the airplanes take off. And this was the earliest experiment uh, or the earliest government-funded experiment on rockets in America. Uh, it saw the suicide squad uh, getting a small uh, light aircraft and attaching some rather dangerous rockets under the wings and then seeing, you know, allowing a very brave pilot to take off and firing the rockets as the plane took off. And the results, despite a few uh, upsets here and there and one rather uh, banged-about plane, uh, were successful. And with that, uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory became a financial uh, entity, it became backed by the government.
0: And of course these Jet Assisted Takeoff Packs, or JATO packs, are just a standard, uh, standard item in, in warfare ever since.
1: It's a huge step forward, uh, not only in, in helping planes take off from, from short distances, uh, but also uh, in rocketry. This was the, the time when America, as a country, started taking rocketry seriously.
0: You also, I think, mentioned in the book how uh, really a lot of times it just comes down to one guy. In this case, Parsons was just tinkering away with a formula to make these these jet packs work, and he was inspired by some uh, some some very old technology.
1: Parsons had been having all sorts of trouble uh, getting the fuel to to burn correctly. Instead of burning slowly and surely, the rockets had been burning all at once and exploding. And he was trying to work out how he could possibly make a, a less combustible, a less dangerous fuel for his rockets. And one day he was uh, walking uh, down a valley and he saw a house and the roof was being tarred over uh, with asphalt. And uh, he thought, my God, maybe, maybe I can use asphalt in my rockets. Now, this wasn't a, a crazy idea. He had always read in the classics of, a, of an ancient mixture uh, which the Byzantine Empire had used against its enemies, called Greek fire. It was a weapon which was rumored to burn on water and was greatly feared for, for centuries across the Mediterranean for its dangerous kind of combustible properties. Now, there had been rumor, and Parsons himself had thought, that maybe the mysterious element inside Greek fire had been asphalt. And using asphalt as the basis for his rockets, as the fuel for his rockets, he made uh, not only a powerful rocket engine, but also a stable one, which didn't explode. Uh, it, was, it was looking back to, to look forward,
0: really. The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons, and we're speaking with, with author George Pendle. George, it's an, it's an amazing story how a young man, inspired by science fiction, got a couple of great institutions off the ground. What became the Aerojet Corporation, what became Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but I don't think we've even scratched the surface of this character, this individual who was Jack Parsons. Uh, if he'd been born later, he might have been a beatnik in the 50s or a hippie in the 60s. But back in the 30s and 40s, can you kind of paint a picture of just how off he was?
1: Well, yes, it, it was almost as if his character was, it was split down the middle between a, a kind of scientific, or a rational side and this other side, his personal side, the side which he... he Try to, try to invent himself as, uh, as an occultist, as a magician. He, uh, he was uh, absolutely fascinated by magic, and uh, he fell under the spell of an English occultist by the name of Alistair Crowley. Uh, now, Alistair Crowley was uh, many things. He was a poet. He was an experimenter with drugs. Uh, but his greatest claim to fame was as a founder of a religion uh, and of a uh, an, an occult sect called the Ordo Templi Orientis. Now Crowley had this idea that the best thing that man could do was to uh, do whatever he wanted. That was his creed: "Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law." Was Crowley's creed, and Parsons completely fell under the spell. I mean, as you said, he could have been a beatnik or a hippie, and he really was, in the 30s, doing things which people in the 60s were, were much more commonly doing. He, was, he joined this cult and worked his way up and slowly began this experimentation with magic to raising himself to a higher consciousness, to speaking with beings on another plane of existence. And <laughs> so by day, while he was making rockets for the United States government, by night he was, you know, trawling through, you know, arcane scripts. He was doing magic rituals with his, uh, with the fellow followers of this cult. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary split between uh, his scientific side and, and his occult side.
0: So uh, I gather that, as, as you mentioned in the book, as Aerojet proceeds, it gets purchased by General Tires, and they're going ahead full tilt with rockets, this, uh, this, <laughs> this odd character was a little bit less welcome than he'd been previously.
1: Nobody could deny that Parsons was a, was really a genius. He was incredible. He was able to control explosions like no one else. He was like this uh, conductor of the orchestra of explosions. And nobody could deny his ability with, with chemicals, but his private life started to intrude upon his, uh, his, his work. And, you know, people started to, to complain that when he was doing his rocket experiments, he would stamp his feet on the ground and make pagan chants to pan. Uh, you know, people started to worry exactly what he was doing at home, why he always turned up late and with bags under his eyes, why he was always you know, seducing secretaries back to his large home or, or, on this very plush street in, in Pasadena. And slowly but surely, the science which he created of rocketry in the United States began to squeeze him out. He just wasn't the sort of character, although he had founded this science, he wasn't the sort of character that really you could rely on anymore. He was becoming much more interested in the occult, more so than even his rocketry, and those two things don't really go together at times.
0: George, we have to address a couple of other characters that uh, that have a role to play in this. In this milieu of rockets, uh, sort of having a salon of occult activity in his home in Pasadena, enters the future head of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, who basically steals Parson's girlfriend. It's
1: It's one of those uh, strange occurrences. Parsons seemed to be at the hub of this wheel of characters and and influences and sciences in Los Angeles. And one of these the the spokes going off this wheel was the science fiction spoke. He was a great friend of science fiction writers, and they saw in him this handsome, young rocket scientist who they could write stories about. Now, at the time, L. Ron Hubbard, the future founder of Scientology, was a well-respected science fiction writer. He was renowned for his ability to write stories, you know, with thousands of words an hour. Um, And he was, Parsons was a great fan of his. And it it turned out that they managed to meet up in Pasadena and uh, they took to each other. Uh, This was in uh, the mid-40s when Parsons was uh, about 30 years old and Hubbard was about the same. Uh, They began living together in this big house. They used to throw story ideas back and forth between them for Hubbard's stories, and Parsons began to get Hubbard more and more interested in his personal life, in his magic. So it turns out that uh, Parsons and Hubbard began doing magic experiments together, They trying to summon forces from the other side. Unfortunately, uh, Crowley, Alistair Crowley's uh, dictum that do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law applied more to Hubbard than to Parsons, because <laughs> Hubbard just wanted to sleep with Parsons' girlfriend. And, and Paul Parsons, being the leader of the cult and not allowed to be jealous or, or seeming to be weak in front of his friend, had to allow him to do it. So it turned out that, that this great friendship was eventually riven because, uh, because Hubbard ran away not only with Parsons' girlfriend, but also a rather large sum of Parsons' own money, which uh, <laughs> was meant to go into a business investment, which went, uh, which went sour.
0: Final irony, I think, is that um, Caltech... One of the Chinese students they brought to help him in with their math uh, gets sort of caught up in the whole Cold War intrigues. He leaves in disgust and winds up becoming a man who builds ICBMs for the Communist Chinese.
1: Unfortunately, Parsons, along with many members of the, the original Suicide Squad, was swept up in uh, the McCarthy, or just before the McCarthy area, of, of the anti-Communist witch hunts. And uh, along with Frank Molina... Uh, and Parsons himself, who had attended a few communist meetings before the war, Uh, there was one student uh, named Xian, Xu Xian, who was a brilliant, brilliant rocket scientist uh, and had worked with the Suicide Squad and made it, you know, into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory alongside Parsons. But when he was accused of being a communist, he was eventually chased away to China, where he became a great friend of Chairman Mao, and one of the originators of, of the Chinese uh, rocket program. Uh, so it's uh, kind of rather ironic that some of the best geniuses, including Parsons, uh, were forgotten or pushed away uh, and never, you know, were really celebrated in their own lifetime.
0: Well, hopefully you, your book will correct that. Uh, I do, I do, th- I do see this coming to theaters someday, George. <laughs> this really needs to be made into a movie, particularly in the fact that uh, I mean, you couldn't have a more dramatic end. Uh, uh, Jack Parsons basically dies in an explosion of his own creation.
1: Yes, he really uh, died the way he lived. Uh, nobody really knows quite what happened around his death. Some people say it was an accident while he was making rocket, uh, rocket powder. Uh, some people thought it was murder because of his communist links. And some people thought that he was merely trying to summon a homunculus from the other side uh, with which to practice his ritual magic. Uh, Nobody's quite sure of what happened, but Parsons certainly died the way that he, he probably knew he always would, uh, in a kind of holocaust of flame.
0: Well, he's a singularly interesting character, George, and we're glad that you took the time to write this book about him. And I also want to thank you personally for the fact that after reading it, I was inspired by this, this real link I was unaware of between sci-fi and, and science to, uh, to follow your lead and, and look up Ray Bradbury, and we got a wonderful interview out of Mr. Bradbury for this program as well.
1: Well, Ray Bradbury remembers meeting Parsons as a young boy, and, um, well, he's just one of the many people who, who Parsons touched on during his life.
0: The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. George Pendle, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. That's it for Radio Parallax. I'd like to thank Michael Trachtman and George Pendle for coming on the show and talking to us. Next week, we'll be bringing back Lester Lusher and talking to him about his research on the effects of ethnicity on student teacher relationships. Thanks for listening.